Father, thank you for what we have, uh, what we've sang this morning. Thank you for God, just the God, just the refrain of our hearts today, and and uh, God, we are we have declared that you are a miracle worker, and your promise keeper, your way maker, and. Uh, and God, over and over, the refrain of our heart was, that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are. And, uh, and so, God, I just pray that even, God, even in many ways, regardless of what I say today, would just, just your healing presence be among us? Would your healing presence be among us, God, just to, just to heal physically? to heal emotionally, God, to restore any sense of brokenness or any sense of pain. Holy Spirit, I pray that your healing presence would uh, be so uh, evident among us this morning. God, it be so evident among us that we, that we just catch something afresh today, God, we, we catch something, we carry, and that's the way we get together, we, we, we get together so we carry ourselves differently from here. And, uh, and God, we just are so aware of people that just need healing in this community. And thank you for the opportunity you've given us, God, to lay hands on the sick. And God, we pray that you would, we would see them made whole. God, we would see people being made whole. God, we're longing for moments that 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 just uh, just cause us, give us wide open doors to point to Jesus. We continue to that would be the cry of our heart today. Your miracle worker, your way maker, your promise keeper. You're the light in the darkness. The light in the darkness. It's who you are, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. To go from to go from that, I wish my opening quote is from is from The Simpsons. Forgive me, but I was it was I don't watch The Simpsons just in case anybody has listened to me and decides, well, if he listens to the Simps watches The Simpsons, I am refusing to listen to anything that he has to say. But it's just uh it's from years ago. And it was a question that Bart asked his dad, now that I hear myself saying this, I can't believe I'm actually saying it. Sounds a good idea, I was just writing it down. Bart asked his dad, what religion are we? And Homer said, you know, you know, the religion with all the well-meaning rules that don't really work in real life. And um, it could be a silly show, it could be an irreverent show and all of that, but there's something about that that, that, that that I still think about um, for different reasons. But that, that idea, like, is that, surely that can't be true. The religion that has all the well-meaning rules, come to church, read your Bible, pray your prayers, but actually it doesn't really work in real life. In the ordinary, every day, nine to five, it doesn't really work. And I'm like, 
That cannot be the case. In some ways, whenever you actually you, you begin to engage with the ordinary Simpsons family of the, of the world, sometimes you think, actually, that is the perception that's, that many have. We're just trying our best over this series to try and debunk some of that stuff and see if there's a way that following Jesus would permeate our everyday life. Following Jesus, we cannot help but be infused by his grace and his love and his kindness. The following Jesus would just permeate our everyday lives. No sphere, no part of it would be, would be unaffected by Jesus. Would be just divinely infected by love and grace. And, and that's what we want to do. It's like, like I know it's church wide bother, but like, regardless of the title, the nice title that we can put in these sermons, well, how can we, how can we encourage? How can we equip people in such a way that following Jesus permeates everything that we do, everything that we say? And, 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 and how, can we, how can we equip and how can we stir it amongst ourselves, amongst each other, that we would carry the presence of Jesus everywhere and it would inevitably influence those around us? It becomes inevitable. When, Jesus, the, when following Jesus permeates every part of our lives and we carry it everywhere that we go, people cannot help but be influenced by that. Those around us cannot be helped being influenced by the lives that we're leading. And, uh, and as a thought reflected often on, on what Andrew and Jenna shared last Sunday, I'm wanting to think of what it would be like for us. I'm wanting to challenge you. I want to encourage you that you would be a people that would live questionable lives. I know it sounds like that's often in the negative term, isn't it? Like it's often negative, but what would it be like for us to live questionable lives? For us to live in such a way that those that we spend our weeks with would say, why do you talk about your family so much? Like Judith is still, Judith still moved by that like all week. Do you remember Andrew asked, like, how beautiful was that, that? That people asked Andrew, why do you talk about your family so much? But we, live so, we would live such questionable lives that people would say, why do you live like that? Why do you prioritize that? Why is that how you're bringing up your kids? Or whatever it is. We would live questionable lives. We'd live lives in such a way that people would take notice, that people would ask questions. And, and, and it wasn't Peter that said that you, would, that you would live in such a way that people would, would want to know, that people would begin to ask the reason for the hope that is within you. So what would it be like, what would it be like guys? What would it be like for us to live questionable lives? I'm so provoked. I'm provoked by that thought this week. I'm provoked by it. I'm like, why? I feel like I'm, I'm spending more and more time with people who don't know Jesus. And I still, and I'm, I'm like, a, and I'm, I'm, I'm not being overt. I don't want to freak people out or scare people off. But I'm, I'm like, there's times I reflect on, on it often. I'm like, why? Why are they not asking me? Why am I, why am I, why are they not asking me questions? Why are they not asking me for the reason that the, for the hope that is within me? And so that's partly the, this was a big reason why we wanted to talk about, about the church. What would it be like to be a people that follow Jesus, Jesus that permeates our everyday, that society cannot be helped be influenced because we acknowledge and recognize that we're a called out people. We're a people that have been called out and sent for the welfare of uh, the town, region, village, community that we have been called to. 
And I loved it. I really loved what Jenna and Andrew shared with us last week. I loved it because of because as I listened to them talk and I've reflected on what they shared, I cannot help but but notice what Jesus did the whole way through the Gospels. The whole way through the Gospels, every time Jesus encountered someone, he increased the value that that, that was he increased value. He increased worth. In fact, maybe he didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't increase it because it was, ready, it was ready there. He just acknowledged it. He recognized it. He called out the value and worth that was, that was inherent in people. Those, divi- those people that bore his image. And so I love that. And that's why actually let me, let me emphasize again that, uh, that announcement that Andrew made. Because I think there's something so beautiful about that. And one of the lines that I took a picture of last Sunday that put Andrew off was taking a picture of that line. I want to take a picture of Andrew, but it was this access, not ability um, slide that was on the screen. And again, that, that's what Jesus was all about. It's all about how can, he, how, can he, how can he cut down every cultural barrier? How can he cut down every fence that had been created so that there was access to him, so that people could make their way to Jesus. And he just, he just lived that life of accessibility. He lived that life of accessibility, not based on ability. And so again, just to say again, what an incredible thing it would be to consider the, the people that don't have the ability to read and to listen to the newspapers in the same way that you do, to actually value them that much, to place such value and worth on them people that are in this community that you would give up your Friday morning or your Thursday night so that they have the accessibility that they deserve that is that they are of such value and such worth that we place such dignity on on everyone that that becomes something that's really important to us it becomes a real kingdom task and for me if like you you for you to give that Friday morning to increase the value and worth on people is an, is a kingdom task and so I'm encouraging you uh, to, to take that up if that works. Ephesians chapter 4 is, is one of those verses that uh, I'm just going to touch, it, touch on it. I think we, we need to. I, we want to come back and spend some time in Ephesians chapter 4. I don't think you can talk about, about church and ask the question, why bother without going to Ephesians chapter 4? Uh, and we will go there, but I just want to still, um, I still want to keep our our thoughts around the idea, some of the thoughts that maybe Andrew and Jenna stirred within us last week. I think where where Neville will pick up on again next Sunday. So verse eleven, it says that um, it was he who gave some to be apostles. Actually, let me just read from verse 9. I'd love to read the whole thing. What does, what does he, he ascended on high to each one. Let me go to from 7. <laughs> Desperate to go back for the first one. It's verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he left captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And I have to read that because I just love that. Jesus went as high as he possibly could go and he went as low as he possibly could go in order to fill it all. 
He fills it all. Everything finds its place, its meaning, its purpose in and through him. He went as high as he could go. He ascended as high as he could go, looked, descended as low as he could go in in order to fill it all. And then it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we attain or we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And and, uh, it's really important. Uh, And I spent so much time in Ephesians chapter 4 over the last number of years and and I continue to love the fact that Jesus gave gifts to people. He didn't give programs. He didn't give buildings. He gave, he gave gifts to people. You are. You are the gift. It's to prepare, and, and I'm going off on a tangent, but it's to prepare God's people. These gifts have been given so, we prepare, so God's people, every one of us can be prepared for works of service. Every one of us can be prepared for where it is that we're going to serve, where it is that we are currently placed, where it is that we are currently working, serving, have influence around. The church has been given all of these gifts. All of these gifts, I will fight you to the bitter end that these gifts are for today. Apostles, prophets who need them, desperately need them. The church desperately needs them evangelists, teachers, and shepherds. They've all been given so that we can build up, we can build up the, the body, that we can prepare God's people for works of service until we all reach unity in the faith. And so suppose the only argument you could make for whether these five, all of these gifts are for today is if you think that we have all reached unity in the faith. And as wonderful as the church is, we have not all reached unity in the faith, so we still need the gifts the five gifts to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And so my heart, my, my, my prayer continues to be that we would, we would be people that would flourish in our gifts through our jobs. Be people that flourish in our gifts through our works of service, through the places that we've been called to. And then I'm convinced I'm convinced that we are designed to flourish in local church while accomplishing the vocation that God has given to each one of us. To flourish in our gifts through a job and flourish in the local church while accomplishing the vocation that God has given each of us. I read from reading a book this week and this is not this is incredibly challenging to me as I begin as I continue to think about about work being a church that would feel like we're equipping and preparing people for wherever it is that they find themselves but this was one guy's experience we suspect that our work as a teacher or nurse or lawyer or parent is every bit as godly and kingdom expanding as that of the clergy, but it's never acknowledged. We suspect that we are not much more or less righteous than our leaders, but that is never expressed. 
We suspect that God is more interested, is interested in more than our weekly attendance and regular offerings, but no one ever explicitly says so. And soon we begin to doubt ourselves and wonder if our very ordinary, everyday existence is really important to God and to our church leaders. And he goes on to talk about how this unexpressed rage sits heavily in our chests. And he goes on to say about how some leave church for good and others just keep attending for the sake of their kids. And all this alienation leads to a disconnect between my faith and my life. I can't help but read that and feel so pain to read that that was someone's experience as a teacher or as a lawyer or as a nurse or whatever it was that they felt that where they'd been called was as kingdom expanding as the clergy, but it was never expressed. It was never said. They felt like they felt that all that they were contributing was their weekly attendance and the the money that they put into the collection plate. Nothing else was ever expressed apart from that, and and so I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by that, and I'm and I'm genuinely. That's why I wanted to hear from Jenna's of this church and the Andrews of this church? Is there blind spots? Is there things that we're missing? Is there stuff that we should communicate better that so that all of you know what you do is of incredible importance? Your everyday ordinary life is, inc- is incredibly important. It's, it's greater potential to expand the kingdom than what we do here for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. And so I've been reflecting a wee bit on, uh, on 1 Corinthians 15 over the last few days. And I suppose that's where I want to take, close out some our, our time together, just by thinking of what Paul said in, at the end as he summed up that incredible chapter of, of, uh, of 1 Corinthians 15. As he, as he starts out 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, Reminding, reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that was preached. That Christ died for our sins and he was buried. He was raised to the day. He was raised on the third day. And he had appeared to Peter and then he appeared to more than 500. And then he appeared to James. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. Even though I'm the least of all. The apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Read the whole chapter, it's 50. 50, uh, 58 verses long. I'm not going to read it all today. He's talking about the gospel and he begins to talk about resurrection. He begins to speak about the resurrected body. He goes on to talk about death. Even death has been defeated. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the power. He gives us the victory, sorry. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we reflect on that in light of resurrection, in light of the victory already been won, in light of the fact that death has been defeated, how then should we live? That's the question I'm asking Paul 
as I, as I engage with this chapter of Paul, how then do we live in light of what you're saying, in light of this powerful expose of the gospel and resurrection, how then do we live? Because it feels like we could get away as some uh, theologies would suggest that we just are waiting for heaven. In light of this, you could be forgiven, I think, for thinking that, possibly. Because he's saying like victory has been achieved. It's been one death has been defeated. And so now you just, all you need to do is wait. Wait, hold out. You've got your ticket to heaven, hold out. You should be forgiven for thinking nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Everything has been, everything has been taken care of. Everything has been accomplished. It is finished. It is done. Nothing else matters. And I think that Paul's response in verse 58 is to actually say the opposite. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of resurrection, in light of victory, in light of, of death being swallowed up, how then do we live? Therefore, stand firm and always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor you know that your labor, that word, it comes from a real fatigue from work, a real fatigue from labor. You know that the effort, you know that the work that you've been called to, the ergo, that's the Greek word that Paul uses here, that the ergo that you've been called to is not in vain. It's not futile. It's not pointless. It matters. The work that you do now in light of the resurrection is so important. It matters. Give yourself fully to it. And so that, that ergo word, it's an interesting word because it's, it's, it's the result. It's the result, of, it's the result of, um, of employment or of making or of working. I'm not going to bore you anymore with that word ergo, but it sent me in this about around er, ergonomics and all that sort of fun stuff. But it would sound really boring in a sermon. Anyway, ergo. The result of employment, of making, or working, and I love that. I couldn't help but think of grace. I couldn't help but think like that's the, that, that. Give yourself fully to the work, to the making, the creative. I, would, I, I think the church is desperate for for creatives to come alive, artists, jewelry makers. Give yourselves fully to it, because it's not in vain. Grace, your jewelry making, give yourself fully to it. It's not in vain, it matters. And so, and how did Paul live? So, I, I'm hearing Paul here. I'm hearing him saying, right, okay, Paul, I, I get what you're saying. I feel like I get what you're saying. In light of resurrection, in light of victory, that you still give yourselves fully to the work, give yourselves fully to the labor, because you know that it's not in vain. And so how did Paul live? How did he put this idea of working unto the Lord, of work, giving himself fully to his work? How did, he, how, did that, how did he put that into practice? And I think that we miss this about the life of Paul. All that Paul did, all that, all that happened, all he did happened in the ordinary everyday life of labor. All that he did. All he did happened in the ordinary demanding life of labor. It was the demanding life that Paul was, was leading. 
Pentecost. And you know, I think, most of you will know that Paul was a tent maker. And sometimes we know that, but we never, like, we never think beyond that. And maybe you do, forgive me for saying that, but maybe you do, but I, did, I didn't. And over the last number of weeks, I've been thinking, over the last number of months possibly, thinking about Paul as a tent maker. And realizing that all that happened in the life of Paul, all that was going on in his ministry, it happened in the ordinary, demanding life of labor. And as a, te- as a tent maker, as a successful tent maker, he spent much of his days purchasing fabric, purchasing fabric, cutting fabric, and then sewing it back together. Like a, much of his days were spent, was spent doing that. The demanding life of labor. And I know for some people, I know, I, I know there's conversations I have quite often that people are tempted. And I, I'm probably falling into this category at times. We could be tempted to think, or there's times we could be made to believe that we could do more. We could do more for the kingdom if we were released from our vocational work to focus on and forget ministry. We, we are could be tempted or we've been maybe made to believe by church or by church leaders that if you were able, you, would be, you could do more if you were released from your nine to five to focus on ministering. And I want to suggest to you, and, and again, I, honestly, like I, I want to engage with this. Like just because I say some stuff here because I've got the microphone doesn't make it doesn't make it not debatable or not questionable. But I think, I'm convinced that, or maybe I shouldn't say convinced because then maybe you'll not want to come and engage, but I, I want to suggest that we, are, by, by thinking like that, I think we are tempted to do what did not happen to Paul, what did not happen to Peter, and I would even want to suggest what did not happen to Jesus. And I love that the Gospels tell us about the three years of Jesus, if you want to say full-time ministry. But I think the 30 years that Jesus spent, the 30 years that Jesus spent that we don't know a big pile about were were very important. I think we're wrong if we think the 30 years that Jesus spent as 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 an apprentice to his adoptive dad, Joseph. I think we're wrong if we think that that didn't matter. I think we're wrong if we think it didn't matter how Jesus lived out his ordinary, everyday, demanding life of labor amongst his neighbors and amongst his community. And I know that we don't have a lot of information around it, but I think we're wrong to think it didn't matter. He worked alongside his adoptive dad, Joseph, and he lived among his neighbors. And I think even though he wasn't in full-time ministry, if you want to say that, that he was to the extent of his last three years, I still think he was ministering still think he was beginning to point people to, to the way and the truth and the life. He did it in the ordinary, everyday, demanding life as a, as a carpenter. And if we can, just brag on Paul for another wee minute. Paul was, he was a, he was a well-thought-of teacher. And he was a teacher in, mainly in the Roman world. And, and so the Romans, the, in the Roman world, manual labor was below, was so far below the dignity of a teacher. And Paul had several options as a, as a, as a teacher. 
Paul had several options in the, in the Roman world. He, there's three things he could have done. He could have charged fees. He could have, he could have, he could have put a price on his, uh, his ability to teach. Or he could, have, uh, he could have been employed in the home of a famous or wealthy person within, the, within that community. Could have been almost like a resident teacher. He would have been employed. They would have employed him. He could have made his money that way. Or there was a group, and I know very little about this, there was a group that were called the cynics. And the cynics were just a group of teachers that banded together uh, on street corners and begged for resources, begged for money. Or the fourth option, what Paul decided to take, was to work a side job. Or was to work as a, was to work as a tent maker, and, and the reason why I say that, if you if you uh, find that incredibly boring, come back into the conversation here a minute. But uh, but why I why I mention that is because Paul uh, Paul ends up taking on the lowest status in the Roman world for a teacher. He takes on the lowest status, and and it's really simple. But I just find that I just find myself being moved by that because it begins. I begin to even more makes sense of why Paul was regularly using language like this is foolishness. Why he would regularly use language like it's in my weakness that I'm strong. That's so why I think it was really intentional that Paul lived the life that he lived. He took on, took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself. It reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? How Jesus takes on the nature of a servant, humbles himself, humbles himself, and goes lower. And on that note, that feels like it's language that's just uh, being stirred among among God's people at the minute. The call for us to go so countercultural that we would just go low. The call for us that we just keep going lower. Not to be walked over, I'm not saying that, but you begin to just go low. You would go low, take on the nature of a servant, humble yourself in the way that Jesus did. And I think the way that Paul did, even when it came to his, the tension between being a teacher that could, that could charge people or taking on a job so that he could give it away for nothing. It seemed like foolishness to the Corinthians. And I think that's why there was such tension. I think there was such tension between Paul and the Corinthians because they wanted the status. They didn't want the, they didn't want the weakness. They couldn't understand the weakness and the foolishness. But Paul was trying to reveal something to them. And I think the tension came because Paul had taken on, this, taken on the lowly status. He wasn't someone that they could be, that they could be proud of. And I think that, that hurts Paul. I think that, that pains Paul. And if you, again, to take note of it, if you want to read 1 Corinthians 9, I think 1 Corinthians 9 reveals Paul's heart. Paul's heart was that he would work really hard. He would take on this demanding life of labor, going to the marketplace, purchasing fabric, cutting fabric, sewing it back together, and then selling it again as, as, uh, as product wherever it was that he went and he worked really hard so he wouldn't place any financial burden on those that he was so passionate about reaching. He was so passionate about people experiencing that the love of Jesus that he worked even harder. 
He worked even harder so that he would not place any burden on them. Let me go back to another quote. Again, a similar sort of tone from the one that I just read. And they almost, this is a story of another guy called William. In the almost 30 years of my professional career, my church has never once suggested that there be any type of accounting of my on-the-job ministry to others. My, my church has never once offered to improve those skills which could make me a better minister, nor has it ever asked if I needed any kind of support in what I was doing. There has never been an inquiry into the types of ethical decisions I must face or whether I seek to communicate the faith to my co-workers. I've never been in a congregation where there was any type of public affirmation of a ministry in my career. In short, I must conclude that the church really doesn't have the least interest whether or how I minister in my daily work. And again, it's like, oh, come on. How you minister in your daily work is, is so important. And I think the life that Paul lived, I think that Paul was trying to teach and what he communicated in the way that he lived reveals the opposite of what this guy William's experience with the church had been. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 17, let me just show a, a wee bit, I think, of how, how this played out. This type of ministering to others in the work and the on-the-job work played out. In Acts 17, verse 17, it said, Paul reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews. And, the, and so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. And I think that there could potentially be some debate, but the most likely thing is that Paul was in the marketplace during the day and ministering to people who happened to be there. In the marketplace, as he, as he, as he was doing, his, as he was selling his tents, as he was purchasing the fabric, as he was in his, in the, in his everyday, everyday ordinary life in the marketplace, that's where he was ministering to people. Whoever happened to be there, told them about Jesus, told them about love and forgiveness and resurrection and hope and victory. And he did, he did, he did the stuff, he did it in the evenings. He had his meetings in the evenings where he would have reasoned with the Jews and he would have, he would have spoken to those in the synagogue and those who worshiped God. He, he would have spent his evenings there whenever the, the meetings were on. But it was in, I think it was something about what he did in the marketplace. Some of what he did in the marketplace. And you know that there is, as you would engage with the Gospels and you see the miracles and the encounters in the Gospels and even in the lives of Peter and Paul, you will, I think it's in the, I'm not sure, can't remember the exact statistics. I'll need to shout out if you know, but it's in the, it's 90 plus percent took place in the marketplace. There are very few, there's very few encounters took place in the synagogues. Not that that's not, Important. I'm longing for encounter here. I'm longing that we experience the power and the presence and the healing and all that comes with, with following and pursuing Jesus. But actually, if we're following the pattern that is laid out for us, it's, it's, it's out in the marketplace. 
where it's all put into practice. It's out in the marketplace where it all comes fully alive. And Paul did that. He reasoned in the he reasoned at the meeting place, but he also reasoned in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. And so Paul's ministry permeated his whole life. I'm done. Paul's ministry permeated his life. And whether he was making or selling tents, or whether he was in the meetings in the evenings, he was ready to give an answer for the hope that he had. And that's my prayer for all of us. My prayer for all of you is that that would be the, that would be said of us that our ministry. That, that, that what we do permeates following Jesus, pursuing the call of Jesus on our lives would permeate our whole lives. So whether it's here on a Sunday or on Wednesday night in the hub or whether it's in your nine to five marketplace jobs that you will be ready to live questionable lives, to have an answer for the hope that is within you. And so Holy Spirit, we need you for this. Holy Spirit, we can we can present this in, in, in 25, 30 minutes and try and t- tie a little bow on the end of it and present it. But God, we, we are so aware of how we need you. We need you and how we wrestle through how we do this really well. We need you as we consider what it would be like to be wise and to be shrewd and to be, uh, to be clever uh, God, to be gracious and to be kind. We just need you to, to help us work this all out really well. And so we just we, we open ourselves to you. We open ourselves to you in such a way that it would say, come, fill us anew. Fill us afresh. Permeate our whole being. That our whole minds would be permeated by thoughts of you. That our, that our hearts and our lives, our bodies, our physical response would just be because we've been permeated. Our lives have been permeated by by Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us? Fill us, oh God. As we go into our marketplaces, as we go into the, the places where we find ourselves in our normal, everyday lives, that we would um, find ourselves ministering as the body of Christ, ministering as a people who know you, have experienced you, and are ready to give it away to the next person that we meet in Jesus name. Amen.